1: Have you ever met someone who overcame self-doubt and turned their challenges into opportunities? Building mental strength is a lot like building physical strength. You need good habits. According to today's guest, Amy Morin, when you give up the things that are holding you back, you can accomplish incredible feats. Amy is here today to discuss strategies women can use in order to exercise mental and emotional strength. Amy is a licensed clinical social worker and psychotherapist. She is the author of the national bestseller, 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do, as well as 13 Things Mentally Strong Parents Don't Do. Her TEDx talk, The Secret of Becoming Mentally Strong, is one of the most viewed talks of all time. Amy is the author of 13 Things Mentally Strong Women Don't Do, Own Your Power, Channel Your Confidence, and Find Your Authentic Voice for a Life of Meaning and Joy. Welcome, Amy. Thanks for joining us. Well, thanks so much for having me. So Amy, women are finding the confidence and the courage to speak out on critical issues today. You wrote a book, 13 Things Mentally Strong Women Don't Do. How do you define a mentally strong woman? So uh, mental
2: strength is all about being able to think in a way that's realistically so that you're not overconfident, but you're also not filled with self-doubt. It's about knowing how to manage your emotions so that you can use your anger to to fuel you to create change or that when you're sad, you can take steps to boost your mood. And it's about knowing how to take positive action so that when no matter what kind of circumstances you face, you know that you can take a step to either make your life or somebody else's life a little bit better.
1: So your work is around helping people become mentally strong. How did you get started on this journey?
2: So I started as a psychotherapist and I thought, okay, I'm going to start my my work based on everything I'd learned in college and things that I learned in these textbooks and uh, was excited to teach other people how to be mentally strong. But I didn't realize how much I was going to need it in my own life. And shortly after my career began, my mother passed away suddenly from a brain aneurysm. And it really set me on this path to study mentally strong people, uh, not just to help people in my office, but also to help myself. I wanted to know how come some people went through struggles and they, and they came out on the other side stronger versus why did some people seem to just get stuck in life? And uh, a few years after my mother passed away, it was three years to the day, in fact, that my 26-year-old husband died of a heart attack and again at that point i knew all right it wasn't always about what people did but sometimes it was more about what they didn't do and i had learned that sometimes it just takes one or two bad habits to keep people stuck and so it set me on this path to identify what are the bad habits that keep people stuck and a few years later my father-in-law was diagnosed with terminal cancer and i wrote my list it was a letter to myself of the 13 things mentally strong people don't do because i needed a reminder don't do these things if you want to stay strong And then I published my letter online, hoping it might help somebody else, and it went viral. Fifty million people read it, and it changed the course of my career. Ever since then, I've been writing and speaking about mental strength and how to give up the bad habits that we all engage in sometimes so that we can make all of our good habits much more effective.
1: You know, everything that you just described, your your life is is very similar to mine. Ten years ago, in a period of six months, my 23-year marriage ended. My mother died. And then six months later, my sister died. On top of that, one of my best friends passed away from a brain tumor, shed brain cancer. And this was in such a short period of, of my life. And so many people have said to me over the the course of the past 10 years you're so brave you're so strong how did you do this and and i've always been fascinated because i have no idea i know any one of those things could knock someone really you know down for for quite a long period of time and i survived all of them you know at one time so i'm interested in learning more about this conversation because i've always wondered what was it that enabled me to move forward and do this work from that not only did i survive i thrived and my life changed so this is really a, a fascinating conversation that i'm excited about
2: right i just you know sorry that you went through all of that as well and i think it's one of those things sometimes you don't know how strong you are until you have to be mm-hmm. and and then when you get through it and you kind of look back and you think well how did i do it how how come i'm not you know stuck in a in a self-pity. How come I'm not uh, somebody who ended up feeling like the world's a terrible, horrible place? I'm not bitter and angry. And I bet you could identify plenty of things that you didn't do that other people who who do get stuck tend to engage in. And I saw it in my therapy office on a regular basis, people who just did one or two small things. Sometimes it was about identifying, hey, just don't do that anymore. And I promise you, then all of those other good things you're
1: doing will be much more effective. Can we talk about a few of these things that are not the best practices if you want to be mentally strong? What are some of the things we should avoid doing?
2: So I guess one of them would be a big one is to not see vulnerability as a weakness. And for women in particular, sometimes we tend to think that we need to put on our game face at all times and and to try to look like we're tough. And there's a big difference between being strong and being tough. Being tough Mm -hmm. is about trying to appear as though you don't have any problems, that pain doesn't bother you and that no matter what, you're going to keep going. Whereas being strong sometimes means asking for help. It means admitting you don't have all the answers. It's about really connecting with people and saying to somebody, my feelings are hurt, or I'm sorry, or uh, here's something I'm struggling with. And it takes a lot of strength and courage to be able to do that. But it's key to getting the social support to reaching out to people who can help you and to know that you don't have to go it alone.
1: I know one of the things, and, and this is on your list, one, one of the things I had done early on and especially social media makes it so easy to do, is I would compare my life where I was with the life of others by scrolling through social media. And and so, for example, after my mom passed away on Mother's Day, you talk about being, Mm -hmm. you know, to torture yourself, I would go on social media and I would look at all the wonderful Mother's Day celebrations that my friends were having. And If you get into the practice of doing those types of things that I call self-torture, I could see how that could be a behavior that would keep you stuck.
2: Yes. And it really is a form of self-torture. And yet... Sometimes we try to convince ourselves that we're gaining inspiration from it. So uh, take Instagram, for instance. There's plenty of studies that show Instagram can be really bad for your mental health. And I'm not against social media at all. I use social media, but it's important to be aware of how it affects you. Because we know that for a lot of women, they're scrolling through social media and they're looking at fitness models. They're looking at images of people who appear to have their life all put together and that everything's perfect. And when you constantly... Uh, fill your mind with all these thoughts that other people are happier, healthier, wealthier, and they're doing better in life, it can easily make you feel bad about yourself. And there was a fascinating study that found that men, when they look at images of other men who uh, tend to be doing better, sometimes they gain inspiration. They think, oh, I could be like that someday. But women, when we look at those images, we tend to think, oh, I'll never be as good as she is. Mm -hmm. So I think it's really important to just take a look at how much time you spend doing that, how your thoughts are probably irrational. You don't know how somebody else's life really is. You tell yourself a story about those people that you see. But if it starts to affect the way that you think, if it's affecting the way that you feel, you really need to scale back
1: on, on comparing yourself to other people. So the example that you just used, that leads me to my next question, because you wrote this book now about mentally strong women, and you've written a book about mentally strong people. Are there differences between the things that men and women do and how it impacts mental health? Well, you know, when I wrote the first book, I was just thinking about
2: everybody in general. And then, of course, since that book came out in 2014, lots of things have happened uh, in terms of the Me Too movement and things like that. But I really wanted to know when it comes to women in particular, how does sort of the societal pressures affect us a little bit differently? And right down to the studies about the way that we raise girls a little bit differently than we do boys, really subtle, small things that we do, but that are giving girls the message that boys are better. There's one study that I found particularly disturbing when we look at five-year-old kids and we ask them to pick out who they think is brilliant out of the photo lineup. Most kids pick out somebody with their own gender. Girls pick out women, boys pick out men. When we do that same study when they're seven, almost all the kids identify men as brilliant. And so I think it's so important just to look at the subtle messages that we give to girls and how do we change, change that so that they don't grow up thinking that they're not as good or that they don't measure up, and so that
1: they can have healthy self-worth. So we're talking about the way that we view things, how we think about things, perceive them, messages we may have had, habits... Are there other things that factoring whether or not a person is mentally strong and able to move through challenges
2: absolutely I and mean, part of its genetics which we can't control you can't help it if you say we're born with um, ADHD something like that you know it's a biological condition it's often genetic and, and part of it has to do with mental illness as well there's a big difference between mental strength and mental illness sometimes people think that they're um, somehow related if you have depression or anxiety it means you're not mentally strong but that's not true it's just a complicating factor just like Mm -hmm. if I wanted to go to the gym and become physically strong I could still have a physical illness maybe like diabetes and that might complicate it but it doesn't mean I can't still have big muscles And, and and then of course our life experiences the way you were raised the messages that you got the core beliefs that you developed as a kid we hold on to those straight through adulthood So it's important to really look at, all right, how did I learn? What did I learn about myself? What did I, what kind of beliefs do I have about other people or about the
1: world in general? So unless there's something physical going on, this is really something we have a lot of power over, how we move through challenges, how we create that strength that lets us live an empowered life. We have control over a great deal of this, don't we?
2: Absolutely. It's all about the choices that you make. You know, nobody's born mentally strong. It's all about the choices that you make every day. Do you choose to practice gratitude? Do you choose to calm down when you're upset? Do you choose to have tough conversations, even though it's scary? It's all about all the choices that you make. And do you then figure out, how do I become a little bit stronger today than I was yesterday? and choosing to grow. Absolutely. Anybody can develop more mental strength. And no matter how mentally strong you are, I guarantee there's room for improvement.
1: And I wanted to drive that point home, Amy, because so many people feel like they're a victim to a circumstance or they're a victim to something that's occurring in their life. And they don't have to be because I I know in my life, when I went through all of my challenges, and I was in a really dark place, for me, I like to describe it as making a choice. Now, it wasn't a flip the switch type of choice. One day I'm sad, the next day it, everything's great. But I made the choice that I wasn't going to go in the direction of the darkness. And I was going to figure out a way to to empower myself. And at that point, probably I used the word survive. So I think it does come down to a choice. And and I think, like you're saying, we have so much more power then we really do believe that we do.
2: Yes, and I talk a lot about that self-pity and the victim mentality and that sort of a thing because it's different than being sad. Being sad, being angry, those sorts of things can be part of the healing process. But it's different when you start to host a pity party and you think the whole world is against me, nobody can solve my problems, all these solutions that, that are out there won't work for me. And my life is terrible, horrible and awful because when you start believing that you stay stuck because why would you bother to do anything different if you think the world is a terrible, horrible and awful place? So it's really about then taking action, knowing, okay, I can do something. Maybe you can't change the whole world or you can't change something that already happened, but you can still choose to do something to make your life, somebody else's life a little bit better.
1: Can you share a story from your book that illustrates mental strength?
2: Oh, sure. Gosh, there's so many. I think... One of my favorites, if I had to pick, would be the story of Catherine Switzer. She was a, a woman who had decided to run the Boston Marathon, and it was in the late 60s or early 70s, back before women were allowed to run marathons. And back then, which wasn't that long ago, there was a belief that women just couldn't run that far. And, but she signed up for the marathon, and when she signed up, nobody told her she couldn't sign up. She used her initials so they may not have known she was a woman. Mm-hmm. But anyway, she showed up to the race and just began running with all of these men. And the officials tried to physically knock her off the course, told her she couldn't do it, <laughs> and um, and she finished. ended up finishing the race. She got tons of hate mail afterward, even from other women, who said, what are you trying to prove? Why are you doing this? But I think she's a great example of somebody who didn't necessarily ask permission. She just went out there and showed people. She didn't try to convince them, yes, women can run a marathon, here's here's why, here's why you should let me run. She just signed up and did it. And one of the things I talk about in my book is about uh, how, uh, how important it is sometimes to break the rules. And it's something that a lot of us women were taught to be polite, to be rule followers. And sometimes you have to break the rules to create change. And I'm not talking about... Um, just breaking laws haphazardly but sometimes it's about knowing what are the gender norms that we follow what are the stereotypes that we end up getting caught up in ourselves that perpetuate the unhealthy stereotypes how can we do things a little bit differently to create positive change and of course we know now it would be ridiculous to think women can't run marathons women do it all the time but she was a trailblazer she was a pioneer who said i'm just going to go do this and show that women absolutely can run 26 miles
1: If you could offer someone one tip that could help them develop self-confidence, what would it be?
2: I think it's about um, embracing a little bit of self-doubt. Because a lot of people think, oh, if I'm a little bit doubtful, I shouldn't try this. Or if I'm not 100% confident, I have no business being here. We look around at other people and think, gosh, they all look really confident. They know what they're doing. I'm the only one who doesn't. But the truth is, we all have a little bit of self-doubt, even if people look like they're 100% confident, they probably aren't. And knowing that self-doubt can can actually improve your performance. When we do studies on people and we say, how are you going to do on this test? People that say, I'm going to ace it, tend to actually perform worse than people who say, I'm not really sure if I'm going to pass the test or not. People who have a little bit of self-doubt tend to study harder. So it's one of the things to know that Self-doubt isn't a bad thing. Just embrace it and use it to fuel you to do better and to know that sometimes you just have to act brave to then feel brave. So just get out there and do it. The best way to build confidence is through practice and action, not just sitting on the couch wishing you felt more confident.
1: The book is 13 Things Mentally Strong Women Don't Do, own your power, channel your confidence, and find your authentic voice for a life of meaning and joy. If you'd like to get more information about Amy and her work, you can visit amymoranlcsw.com or as always, you can visit our website, cyacyl.com, which stands for Change Your Attitude, Change Your Life. Amy, in our final moments, what's the takeaway? What would you like to leave our listeners with?
2: I'd say to just get out there and know that you can face your fears, you can feel more confidence, you can do lots of things to make sure that you reach your greatest potential, but that it only takes one or two bad habits to hold you back and counteract all the good work that you're doing. So I'd say work on identifying what's your worst habit and then put your energy into eliminating that from your life and then your other habits become much more effective.
1: Amy, thank you so much for joining us and for providing insight that can help us become mentally strong. There are challenges that we face on a daily basis, and we certainly can use all the strength we can create. So thank you for spending time with us. And Thanks so much for having me. This is Conversations with Joan. Stay with us. We'll be right back.
0: Call them today at 347-903-7030. That's 347-903-7030. Or go to primohealthsolutions.com. Using metabolic typing, Primo Health Solutions will let your body work best.
1: In today's supercharged do-it-now world, convenience is key. Now you can listen to conversations with Joan at a time that's best for you. Simply visit your favorite podcast site, spotify apple stitcher or google search for conversations with joan and subscribe new shows drop every monday you can also access the podcast through our website cyacyl.com start your week on a positive note listen to conversations with joan To live a happy, productive life, but sometimes we just need a little help. Our Coach on Call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Heidi Rome, an Autism Moms Coach and founder of Mom Spectrum Oasis. Heidi's Autism Hope Mindset System empowers a mom to take back her life while creating a bright future for her Spectrum child. She is here today to talk about educating special needs children during COVID. Welcome, Heidi. Thanks for joining us. Thank you so much for having me, Joan. A pleasure to be here. So, Heidi, COVID has resulted in educational changes with significant impact on the vulnerable special needs community. How has the pandemic affected autistic children and their moms differently from neurotypical students and their families? Many of the
3: effects are the same, whether the child is a special needs child or a typical child, just having to be home, homeschooled, away from friends, family, teachers. You know, this This disruption of routine is difficult for any child and especially those with autism for whom any change in routine, even a good change, can be kind of traumatic. So overall, the impact has been more severe, even though it's been hard on all kids, it's even that much more severe for our children with autism.
1: Are all consequences of COVID bad? Do you think that there's something we can learn about ourselves in the face of these challenges? Absolutely. And I
3: think that is the key for the autism mom and for her child. So much of what we can learn from any difficult experience is the power that we have to choose our perspective and choose what we focus on about a situation. I mean, let's face it, a virus is a virus, it's a natural phenomenon. It affects everyone and anyone and it has nothing to do with who you are what your belief system is where you live I mean absolutely nothing Mm -hmm. it is you know something that affects all of us and so we have an opportunity to not necessarily view this neutral natural phenomenon we have the opportunity to say well what are the challenges around this and what good in fact may have come from this imposed change So, for example, we can see, you know, have we learned from it? So, the shift, for example, to Zoom meetings instead of in person things. Now, this has a very difficult impact, and no one is certainly not, I am not minimizing the loss of being with people in person. You know, we, we all need human beings, we need our hugs, we need to be in the presence of the people we care about, our teachers. Our social system, however, given that we can't uh, affect what is going on and we're, we're we have to wait it out and and be safe in doing that, so the shift to zoom, for example that has been an adjustment, and yet it gives us the opportunity to bring together people from all across the place, all across the country, across town, people who might ordinarily have difficulty getting out of the house, convening in person somewhere, all of a sudden you have people who can just sit at their computer and, and choose to, to get together. So it has its minuses for sure. And it has so many pluses in terms of what it enables. So that would be one example of of something that we can choose to look at as a positive thing, as well as all the other things that go with it. Uh, for example, the enforced rest around it. We can't be running around, you know, like a chicken without a head every moment, accounted for, you know, getting in the car and dashing around and then wondering why we're so exhausted at the end of the day. And let's face it also, with something, a dangerous situation, we also learn to appreciate our relationships and priorities that much more. You know, this is an opportunity to reach out to people maybe we've lost touch with or people we've wanted to connect with but we're feeling a little bit shy. This has been an opening for us to reach out and make sure that other people are okay. So overall, for anyone, not only the special needs community, we have the opportunity to look at what is and see what good may have actually come from it.
1: Heidi, in in many of our conversations, you have shared some of the challenges that you've faced and, and have had to overcome. And, you know, we've talked about the importance of resilience. What do you believe the role of resilience is in addressing these difficult challenges, including covid
3: resilience is the ability to take things in stride and in fact to to do what i just mentioned to look at a situation and be able to hold the paradox of this is tough and what can i learn from it and what good is going on it doesn't minimize or dismiss the difficulty it acknowledges that and it embraces the fact that more than one thing can be true at the same time. So you can have a difficult situation and you can have a, uh, an opportunity for growth. So resilience to me is the choice of looking at your strengths and leveraging at that, those strengths so that you can then encounter and deal with whatever you're facing. So it is a strength-based approach to difficulty.
1: Heidi, thank you so much for joining us once again. If you would like to get more information about Heidi and her work, you can visit Moms, with an S, momspectrumoasis.com Or as always, to hear more from Heidi, you can visit our website, CYACYL.com slash Heidi. We'll be right back. Do you see the value in what you have? I recently made a virtual presentation to a group, and after I was done presenting, we had a discussion about interpersonal relationships. During our conversation, many people expressed concern about how easily they are being replaced. They felt like there was no value given to them and or a relationship by a friend, partner, family member, or employer. Hearing so many people express the same feeling made me start to wonder if we have become a society of disposables. It reminded me of an expression my mother used to say, out with the old and in with the new. This is Joan Herman here with a lesson learned while earning my PhD in life. It's time to see the value in what you have. It seems like just about every aspect of our life today is disposable. We throw away televisions, computers, clothing, phones, food, furniture, and so much more. By contrast, when I was growing up, we fixed everything. There was a neighborhood television repairman. We ate leftovers for dinner. We took our shoes to the local shoemaker for new heels. Baby diapers were cloth, and appliances were kept until they could no longer be repaired. We drove the same car until it died on the road, and marriages lasted until death do us part. While it is true that we have more conveniences and opportunities than our parents and grandparents, I believe our ancestors had something that many of us lack the ability to attach to and appreciate what they had. Today we want immediate gratification. If it's broken, an old model, or not working the way we want, we simply throw it out and replace it with something new, something shiny and upgraded. Is it possible that we are carrying our new disposable mentality into our relationships? How many people do you know that cut off contact with someone with whom they had a disagreement? They end the relationship and find someone new to fill the void. How many marriages suffer from infidelity because of boredom or not having a particular need met? One spouse moves on to someone new and creates a new family, often breaking ties with their old partner and even their children. How many employers replace or demote an employee for a minor infraction without giving that person a second chance? They hire a replacement. If any of these scenarios sound familiar to you, and I know they do to me, Perhaps it's time to examine how we interact with others. Are we looking for a quick fix? Would we be willing to cut someone out of our life because we are angry? Are we considering replacing a spouse or have already done so before exploring every avenue to repair the relationship? Would we fire an employee without giving it a second thought? If you believe you may have adopted a disposable mentality, Now's the time to make a change. Start nurturing your relationships. Put in the time and do the necessary work. Nothing worth having comes easily. Appreciate and value what you have, material items and relationships, and stop keeping an open eye looking for something better. Empathize with others before taking action. Repair something before tossing it in the trash. If you feel like someone who has been replaced, remember, we can't change or control other people and how they behave, but we can change our behavior. We can change the way we respond and the way we treat others. And little by little, perhaps, our treatment of others may just start a movement in a more positive direction. Who knows? One day, we may learn to treasure the old, And forget the new. Thank you for spending this time with me. For more inspiring tips, visit joanherman.com.
0: Less than 2% of America's population volunteers to defend our nation. Though we rarely see them, we live the benefits of these heroes' sacrifices and the freedom we know and the safety we feel. Each and every day, the Gary Sinise Foundation serves our nation by honoring our defenders, veterans, first responders, and their families. We do this by creating and supporting unique programs designed to entertain, educate, inspire, strengthen, and build communities. The Gary Sinise Foundation has grown because the need has never been greater. Together, we'll improve the lives of thousands of American heroes and their families day in, day out, all year long. While we can never do enough to show our gratitude to our nation's defenders, our veterans, our first responders, and the families who stand by them, we can always do a little more. Join us. Visit GarySiniseFoundation.org.
1: She wants to be home with her friends. But at this moment, she's
4: fighting a brain tumor. Please take a moment and join St. Jude in finding cures and saving children visit stjude.org
0: This is WNYM, Hackensack, New Jersey, New York City.
1: Welcome back to Conversations with Joan. I'm Joan Herman. Thanks for staying with us. According to our next guest, Michael Bianca's plan, today's corporate leadership model is failing us, driving us to a state that can have serious consequences to our health and well-being. Michael joins us to talk about ways that we can enrich leadership skills by choosing conscious leadership. Michael is a leadership expert and corporate trainer whose new book is Conscious Leadership, Seven Principles That Will Change Your Business and Change Your Life. Welcome, Michael. Thanks for joining us.
5: John, it's such a pleasure to be with you. Thank you.
1: So, Michael, lay out the situation for us. What's happening in today's corporate environment that you believe is causing leadership burnout?
5: Well, uh, it's, it's a culmination of a variety of different factors, uh, not the least of which in, certainly in the United States. Uh, the, the greed center, the profit center, uh, most companies are more interested in shareholder value and revenue than the, the human experience in terms of taking care of their associates. We know for a fact uh, there's ample studies out there that show that a significant number of senior executives and senior managers are burnout, burnout, uh, overloaded, overworked. Uh, they're feeling powerless and at the end of the day feeling really demotivated and dissatisfied you know i have over thirty years working in the corporate construct and i've actually developed the concepts and the principles for conscious leadership around what i've observed over time so we have a we have a situation in our in our business community in which we have burnout in terms of leadership Uh, we have folks that are doing good work good people doing good work but at the end of the day unfulfilled and dissatisfied And you have to ask yourself the question. uh, You know, you look at economic indicators and it tells a story that, yeah, we have low unemployment. But the truth is, if you really ask employees that are working for small, medium and large companies how satisfied they are and and got the truth, you'd you'd find that they're really not satisfied. So there's a different way to approach this.
1: So, Michael, for someone that may not be familiar with the term, what is conscious leadership?
5: Well, I think it's important to understand what it's not. Uh, And what it's not is... Uh, managers following the corporate playbook, uh, again, at the end of the day, being burnout. Conscious leadership is waking up. Uh, it's, it's stepping away from leadership autopilot, as I call it. Uh, the fact of the matter is, and, and it's so interesting that uh, you know, your show is around choosing the right attitude, it's so interesting that uh, in, in businesses today, uh, we, have, we have a real difficult situation with, with uh, our employees losing, losing the, the interaction, the human connection that takes place. And so stepping into consciousness means waking up, stepping away from autopilot. The truth is we make thousands of choices every day, and those choices are primarily unconscious choices. We just simply do the things we do every day. Uh, we simply manage to the status quo conscious leadership is waking up stepping into the present tense and understanding that there's different choices that can be made when you step into a level of awareness and presence with those in which you're leading Uh, and the number all the seven principles in my book speak directly to how you you go about doing that
1: and i want to talk about those principles in a moment but before that if this is the way that business is always done and it isn't working any longer but people are afraid Of losing their job or getting in trouble on the job how do we make this switch
5: well this is where leadership true leadership steps in this is where leaders at the top of the house and I work with executive uh, leaders from across a number of different industries this is where top leadership within companies need to understand the power behind stepping into consciousness you create the energetic flow for your organization uh, it's it's nice to think that we could start start at the bottom, but that 's not the right place to start the 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 correct place to start in terms of bringing consciousness to your organization is at the is at the executive leadership side it 's the business owner it's the ceo it 's the folks who operate at the top of the house. They need to embrace principles that change the dynamic and change the flow uh, in which uh, their leadership is actually uh, doled out you know following corporate playbooks is important, certainly policies and procedures but there's it, you know, what you do is important. But how you do what you do is the difference between being successful and not, you know, companies are spending a lot of money on hiring new employees, retention is a big deal. Uh, with most companies, uh, you know, some industries are suffering 40 50% uh, attrition in terms of their workforce.
1: Mm-hmm. So there's
5: got to be a better way to do this. And it starts at the top of the house, John.
1: And you mentioned principles, can you briefly share what these are with us?
5: Yes, I certainly can. Uh, the seven principles in short are, and this is, and I, I, I coach this around the act of being, so uh, they're entitled Be the Real You. Uh, that's not the title, that's not you the title, it's not you what your parents think you should be, it's not what your spouse thinks you should be, it's not what your, your uh, environment tells you should be, but the real you, the essence part of who you really are. When you bring that forward, you have a different level of energy and people receive you differently. The second principle is probably uh, one of the more, more challenging ones, but probably the more important of those, and that's be a peace builder, the inside job. In order for us to actually be conscious leaders, we need to quell the fires that exist within our own belief systems, and we all carry those belief systems into the, into the world that we have. They show up as explicit and implicit bias. Uh, Being able to recognize what prevents us from stepping into our full self is really important. So it's an inside job. We need to look inside and quell the fires from within. The third principle in the book is be present. and It speaks for itself. You know, when you step into this moment, Joan, you and I are sharing this moment in our lives, and that's all there is. When you realize that and you step into presence... You realize that you, you have an opportunity to listen differently. You have a, uh, an opportunity to interact with the person in front of you differently. And ultimately, you have, the, have a, uh, the difference in terms of your choices that you're making, choices that can lift people up. So being present is absolutely critical to, to changing the leadership model. The next principle, principle number four, is be a risk taker. Now, look, I'm not saying to folks out there, your listeners, that you need to be wild risk takers. That's not what I'm saying. But risk, meaning you know, risk taking the step to, to be conscious, risk taking the step to know the people, get to know the people that you lead and serve. You know, risk opening your mouth and standing on integrity and ethics. In my mind, and from the research I've done, and we, you know, the listeners out there can just open their eyes and look, I think we have an epidemic in this country of lack of ethics and integrity. So it really is important to, to take the risk to step into integrity and ethics. The next one is to be a transformative communicator. What I mean by that is listening beyond the words. As we know in the human interaction, there's three different components when you're face-to-face. There's the words that you're sharing, there's the tone of voice, and then there's the nonverbals. We also know that the nonverbals tell you more of the story. So listening more than the words, viewing more than you see to be a transformative communicator and taking the chance to get to know the folks that you actually lead and serve. The next one is a controversial one, and I've had a lot of people say, be a love leader. Be a love leader. And I'm like, yes. I mean, what one uh, quality in life do we as human beings want to give and receive? And let's be, let's be honest here. And, I get, and when I present this in the corporate construct, people look at me like I have nine heads at times. But I'm like, look, we're dealing with clients. We're dealing with customers. We're dealing with employees. Wouldn't you want all of those entities, both internal as well as external customers, to know that you actually care about them? You actually genuinely and sincerely care about them. That's what I mean by being a love leader, is stepping into caring and really supporting those folks that you lead and serve. And then finally, uh, without having to say a whole lot, be a servant leader. That's a model that, that's a model that I uh, ascribe to. That's a model that in, it really informs me in my day-to-day activities as a professional and leadership coach. Uh, you know, being a servant leader means lifting others up. My success is directly predicated on how well I take care of the folks that I lead and serve. So in short, those are the seven principles, John.
1: And, you know, Michael, we're talking about these principles in relationship to a corporate environment, but listening mm-hmm. to them, these are leadership principles that we can bring into all areas
6: of our life. <laughs> yes.
5: Absolutely. Let, let's be clear to the listeners out there. This book obviously has a, is written from a corporate slant. However, in, in many sections in the book, I allude to the fact that the principles aptly apply in business as well as your personal world, and you're absolutely correct. When we think of leadership, leadership is ubiquitous. Yes, there's, there's corporate leaders, there's business leaders, there's not-for-profit leaders, there's educational leaders, there's medical leaders, parents are leaders, grandparents are leaders, friends are leaders. All of us have an opportunity to, to improve the world that we live in by, by embracing these principles, and you're absolutely correct.
1: And as you said, Michael, you've been doing this for some time, and when these principles are put into action, what have you seen happen? What are the results?
5: Well, I have my own experiences and I left the corporate construct. I was uh, working in the financial services, uh, w- working with a Fortune 100 company, leading lots of people. Uh, and I have 19 years of experience working in financial services across several organizations. What I did is I actually used my, my time working in corporate as a laboratory. So I observed, uh, you know, I observed and developed these principles. Uh, predicated on what uh, what I was what, where I was working, who I was working with, and really developed and experimented with these principles. When I when I employed these principles, my results both and I was a sales manager as well, so my sales were uh, leading sales results. My customer satisfaction scores improved dramatically, and my employee retention as well as my employee development was also. Uh, impacted very very positively so my own experiences have shown that these principles work in a corporate uh, construct uh, but i have also when I uh, as a professional coach working with my private clients and I also uh, have a full-time job working in the largest shipyard in the country uh, coaching leaders both civilian as well as military leaders on enhancing leadership uh, skills and when I bring these principles and I embed these principles in the in the folks with the folks that I'm coaching to develop them uh, I watch and I see how n- not only the interactions that take place between the, uh, the coachee that I'm working with and their direct reports, but organizationally things start to change as well. So it's one interaction, at a time, and we, we can change the, the face of leadership.
1: The book is Conscious Leadership, Seven Principles That Will Change Your Business and Change Your Life. If you'd like to get more information about Michael and his work, you can visit IlluminateAmbitions.com. Michael, in our final moments, what's the takeaway?
5: Yeah, thank you, Jonathan. and Thank you for having me on your show here. I I think the the real wake-up call is to wake up, uh, you know, turn off the autopilot. Realize that you know choice-making is an important uh, part of living as a human being, and particularly as leaders. Our thoughts create our intentions. Our intentions create our choices, and the choices we make in our day-to-day uh, lives create the reality that we live in. So the time, time is now to wake up and step into consciousness.
1: Michael, this is great information. Thank you so much for being here and for sharing it.
5: My pleasure, Joan.
1: This is Conversations with Joan. Stay
6: with us. We'll be right back. Energetic patterns are everywhere, in homes, workplaces, supermarkets, and even places of worship. What most people do not know is that these energetic patterns can affect our lives on a spiritual, physical Mental and emotional level. For example, if you are generally a happy, healthy, and positive person, the energy released from you would be a higher vibration. On the other hand, if you are an unhealthy, unhappy, or negative person, the energy released from you would be of a lower, dense vibration. Imagine what type of energetic patterns are released from couples when a divorce is in the mix. If one of the couples remains in the home after the divorce, those energetic patterns are embedded in their surroundings, including the walls, furniture, and even the bed that both of you slept on. If one of the couples moves out, the furnishings they take with them are still carrying the energetic patterns from the divorce. When a divorce is at hand, the best way to move forward in your personal environment is to have your space cleared professionally with the intention of healing on all levels. Space clearing will remove old stagnant vibration energy and replace it with a new revival. Vitalized energy, creating the feeling of a clean, fresh start. Remember, this is your space and your time. Your space should reflect who you are and your goals in life. Starting your life over can be a cathartic experience. Embrace the moment and make it count. This is Roxanne D'Angelo, a certified and intuitive feng shui and space clearing consultant. If you'd like more information, you can visit me on the web at crystalclearenergies.com.
1: productive life. But sometimes we just need a little help. Our coach on call experts provide strategies to help you live your best life now. Joining me today is Amy Collins, author of the book, Infant Inspiration, and creator of the online course, Moms, Courageous Women Raising the Next Generation. Amy promotes thoughtful conversations around motherhood. Her insightful perspectives look to empower mothers to own their role, clarify how it works best for them, and confidently express it. She is here today to discuss the importance of self-care. Welcome, Amy. Thanks for joining us. Hello, Joan. Amy, many mothers are exhausted by our current state of affairs, so it's extremely important that we practice some form of self-care. How do you define self-care? you know, Joan, you're right. (laughs) The COVID-19
7: pandemic has radically changed the way we live. So navigating this new normal is really not easy. And especially for women, I don't know about you, but I've, you know, read different headlines that women are overwhelmed and exhausted more now than ever before due to taking care of more family members who've come down with coronavirus Having more people at home now creates more housework, and it shows, you know, surveys show over and over that women still do much more of the housework. Um, an interesting headline I also saw said something like, now a working and stay-at-home mom thanks to the pandemic. So now more than ever, practicing self-care is definitely essential, and really self-care is defined um, by taking care of ourselves on all levels, emotionally, re- physically, spiritually, and mentally, our overall well-being. In fact, um, you know, I don't know if you've seen the definition from the World Health Organization, but it defines self-care as, you know, behaviors you do to take care of your own health. And that can include hygiene, nutrition, leisure activities, sports, exercise, and even seeking professional health care services when needed, as well as much more.
1: What are a few ways that we can practice self-care?
7: Well, there's definitely a few essential recommendations that we all need to attend to in regards to our own self-care. And those, I would say there's four essentials and one Joan is to prioritize sleep. When we're exhausted, we need to give in to that sometimes instead of constantly, you know, drinking more coffee or something, right? So mm-hmm. sometimes it's better to just give in and take a 20 minute nap or let yourself one day just sleep without an alarm going off if you can do that. So prioritize sleep. Try to get into a sleep routine. Go to bed at the same time. Wake up at the same time every day. Second, move your body in any way that works for you. So, you know, there's not many gyms that are open right now. So turn on music, dance, jump, skip. I mean, I have to say, when you look at kids and they're skipping, right? Like mm-hmm. think about kindergartners skipping to school in the olden days, right? Pre-pandemic. Right. But you can't be in a bad mood when you're skipping. So even if you skip around the house or get up from your desk and do some jumping jacks. Third, be aware of what you're putting in your mouth, right? We need to make sure that we're fueling ourselves with some good food instead of just comfort food, which is really easy to do when we're all stressed and overtired or nervous. And lastly, it's really important Another essential is to take a few minutes to practice diaphragm breathing. And what that really is, is calmly breathing in through your nose and out through your mouth. And that can have immediate effects on our mental and physical state because more oxygen comes into our bodies, which helps to just immediately calm ourselves.
1: Can you share one of your self-care tips? What do you practice personally? Something I do
7: daily is, well, I'm really aware of what I'm watching on TV. So and and you know there's this kind of darker genre right now of like comedies out there and they're really well done and they're dramatic and they're awesome but I know I can only watch maybe a little bit of them or I really shouldn't watch them right before I go to bed so you know being aware of what I'm watching on TV I'm looking for for myself more light comedic humor that's just witty or fun or something that's inspiring um, just like what I'm reading. Also, you have to pay attention to what you're reading and who you're talking to. So really be aware of what you're taking in right now. I think that's super important.
1: Amy, thank you so much for joining us. If you would like to learn more about Amy, you can follow her on her Instagram page at amymcollins.mommentor. That's amy amymcollins.mommentor. Or as always, you can hear more from Amy on our website, cyacyl.com. Hi, I'm Gail Gruenberg,
4: CPOCD, Chief Executive Organizer of Let's Get Organized. As a professional organizing firm that specializes in serving clients who are chronically disorganized, we help people organize their lives as well as their homes. Are you, or do you have a student starting college this fall? Here are a few organizing tips to make the transition a bit smoother. Bring only the bare essentials. Dorm rooms are small. Remember the adage, a place for everything and everything in its place. Make creative use of the space available by storing things under the bed and on the walls. Create zones for studying, snacking, sleeping, and personal care. Bring a shower caddy. Use a planner to record everything, like test dates, paper due dates, study sessions, activity meetings, sports practices, time to do laundry, and so forth. Block off prep time, the time it takes to do the activity, and time for transitioning to the next activity. Color code by activity or class. Doing your laundry and putting it away, rather than throwing everything on the floor, makes for a good roommate experience. Empty your backpack at the end of each day and prepare it for the next one. I'm Gail Gruenberg, and I can help bridge the gap between wanting to get organized and actually doing it. If you want to get organized for college success, call me at 201-364-6833 or visit my website lgorganized.com.